A mysterious death. Possibly a tragic accident. Another theory is suicide. While some observers are convinced this very public death in central London was an act of murder. The victim, a man of wealth, power and intrigue. It was a midweek summer afternoon in the British capital and most Londoners were going about their daily business. It was a Wednesday that followers of British politics remember as the day when Prime Minister Tony Blair was on his way to Buckingham Palace to offer his resignation to Queen Elizabeth. But there was another important event on that cloudy afternoon. Carlton House Terrace is one of London's most fashionable addresses. Former residents include three previous British Prime Ministers. It lies just a few hundred meters from Piccadilly Circus. On that June day in 2007, the genteel Rose Garden was filled with police, first responders to the strange discovery of a man's body lying on the lawn. The body was that of 63-year-old Dr. Ashraf Marwan, father of two, a billionaire businessman and a spy. His fall from a fifth-floor balcony would spark more questions than answers. Had he fallen? Did he jump? Or was he pushed? Dr. Marwan was the third Egyptian living in London to die in this way. In 1973, the Egyptian ambassador to the UK, General Lathi Nassif, fell from a balcony in the very same building. And in 2001, Actress Suad Hosni, known as the Cinderella of Egyptian cinema, also fell to her death. It's generally accepted that Ashraf Marwan was a highly valued intelligence agent. But what is in dispute is whether he was working for Israel, for his native Egypt, or both. As is the case with any unexplained death in Britain, a police investigation and a coroner's court would attempt to find answers. Their role to draw different sections of law enforcement into the investigation. البوليس وفي العاصمة لندن هناك جهاز شبه مستقل يسمى المتروبوليتان بوليس يعني أمن العاصمة البريطانية وهو المسؤول بالتعاون مع مكتب التحريات المعروف نيو سكوتلاند يارد. In Britain, there's a strict police protocol when arriving at a suspicious incident. It's essential that evidence is preserved, clues that may be of value later in the investigation. Once they attend the scene, they should seal the area. So there's two areas to seal here. One is where the person has fallen. So that entire area should be sealed because there may be important evidence. Secondly, the apartment from where the person has fallen, that area needs to be sealed as well. And it's very important that um, these areas are sealed because of forensic detail. 
يعني ليس هناك قاضي تحقيق كما يرد في دول أخرى يأتي إلى الموقع هناك الشرطة الشرطة تصل إلى استنتاج معين بناء على الدليل والقرائن والمعطيات تأخذ قرار من قبل النائب العام توجيه أو عدم توجيه تهمة There were three immediate explanations facing the police an accident, suicide or murder In some cases the cause is obvious and as evidence mounts up police attention is drawn to a single conclusion Absolutely, the police uh, quite frequently can do that. Um, and the problem is, once they do that, then they will look for the evidence to support that theory, potentially ignoring other more profitable avenues that they could be going down, um, or discarding bits of evidence that don't fit with that theory. So that can be a problem, um, and it happens fairly regularly. In this case, the, the police had uh, undertaken an investigation, but it seems that the police had already predetermined themselves that this is a suicide case. So the police have come to the coroner's court. They've said this man has fallen over the balcony. We don't have any other evidence. What is certain is that Dr. Marwan was alive when he tumbled over the balcony of his luxury apartment. Initial police investigations looked at all possible options. The former editor of the British newspaper, The Independent, has followed the case closely. At the time, he poured doubt over the suicide theory, saying there were too many unanswered questions. Um, no. One thing I do know about him were two things. One, he's a very proud man. And I don't think proud men kill themselves. Not, not like that. And the second thing was... He was a very meticulous man, and I don't believe he would have left unfinished business. It, it, it wasn't clear whether he... I don't think there was a note or anything like that. I mean, if there was, I didn't know about it. Um, I, it just didn't seem right to me. The coroner's court would later establish that Marwan died from a traumatic rupture to the aorta, the main artery carrying blood from the heart. According to this document, published by Wikileaks, Marwan's family does not believe he took his own life. He was planning for the future, and suicide did not figure in his plans. Dr. Marwan's family were very much of the mind that he did not commit suicide. So in order to persuade the coroner, the coroner, sorry, that um, this was not a case of suicide, one would have to highlight certain things. So how did Dr. Marwan present in the days, weeks leading up to the 27th of June 2007? Did he seem happy? Uh, did he have any plans? So I understand his wife um, was very clear that this was um, a 63-year-old man with everything to live for. He was still working, he still had an active life and in fact he had holidays planned with his grandchildren. So you would highlight that, you know, this is somebody who has got ongoing plans so that they anticipate being around, not um, taking their own life. The inquest took place in London some three years later. It declared an open verdict, meaning that the death was suspicious, but with no clear cause. The <laughs> 
وهو أخذ منحنيين الأول إذا كانت القضية قضية انتحار وجد أنه حياة أشرف مروان وترتيباته والتزاماته كانت جدا طبيعية وبالتالي لم يعتقد أنه كان في هناك ما يمكن أن يعطيه أدلة وقرائن بأن المسألة كانت مسألة انتحار وأيضا وصل إلى استنتاج أن ليس هناك دليل كافي حسب القوانين البريطانية أن يكون هناك تحقيق بجريمة قتل أو توجيه اتهام لغائب وصل في نهاية التحقيق أن الدكتور أشرف مروان فيش حاجة تثبت أنه هو انتحر وما فيش حاجة تثبت أنه هو اتقتل وبقى open verdict في القضايا So the open verdict is where the coroner is saying something is wrong here but I don't know what happened. There is not enough evidence before me to come to any conclusion as to how this death occurred. Therefore, it's called an open verdict. Some 40 years earlier, Ashraf Marwan married Mona Gamal Abdel Nasser, daughter of Egypt's then president, Gamal Abdel Nasser. On the day her husband died, Mona was in Beirut, while their two sons were in Cairo. There are no independent witnesses to whatever occurred at 24 Carlton House Terrace on that June afternoon in 2007. Remarkable achievement of being Prime Minister for 10 years. For 10 years he has led our country and no one can be in any doubt he has considerable achievements to his credit. So can I say on behalf of There are plenty of theories, but hard facts are in short supply. The scene offered investigators a lot of clues, but nothing definitive enough for them to come to a conclusion as to what exactly happened in the apartment. Ashraf's life and death were equally enigmatic, both filled with incomplete details and half-answered questions. Just who was Ashraf Marwan? Only those who were closest to him can genuinely answer the question. One British journalist succeeded in contacting Marwan's family. I spent about six months uh, trying to speak to someone from Marwan's family uh, via uh, their British uh, lawyer. Um, after, after a long period of time, uh, unexpectedly, I'd kind of given up on ever hearing from them. And then out of the blue, I got an email from uh, Ahmed, who was Marwan's younger, younger son. Um, and he said, meet me in London tomorrow uh, at lunchtime. Um, so, of course, I raced there the next day. He was smoking and very thoughtful in his answers. He took a long time to answer every one of my questions. Um, so I asked him about soft questions initially, just to, you know, to tell me about his father, what was it like growing up. Came in with you know, some of the more pressing questions that I had. Um, for example, you know, does it, did he believe that his um, father killed himself? And if not, then who was behind his death. For the 
Marwan family, it was very important that the coroner's inquest would show that uh, Ashraf did not kill himself um, for their faith and for also uh, the pride of their family. Um, they are completely satisfied that uh, the investigation showed that to be the case, that uh, Marwan did not kill himself. For me, I don't quite buy that because if it was my father um, and I found out that he didn't commit suicide, I would still want to know why he wasn't with us. There's some evidence that Dr. Marwan thought in those final days that his life was under threat. Marwan's widow, Mona Abdul Nasser, has rarely spoken publicly about her husband's death. But in July 2010, she did agree to a London newspaper interview. She claimed that agents of the Israeli intelligence service Mossad were behind her husband's death, though there's no evidence to back this up. She said that her husband feared for his life, believing that assassins were coming after him. And she categorically ruled out the possibility of suicide, saying they were a happy couple with everything to live for. She told the paper that, quote, there is no way he killed himself. It is so painful to think about one's husband being thrown over a balcony. So who were Ashraf Marwan's enemies? Might the answer lie in Egypt, where it's been claimed the Egyptian businessman was spying for Israel? الإجابة أن أشرف مروان كان له أعداء كثيرين وبالتالي فإن المستفيد من يعني إسكات صوت أشرف مروان هم جهات عديدة على رأسها المخابرات الإسرائيلية فضلا عن كل عملاء وسماسرة تجارة السلاح التي تعامل معهم أشرف مروان خصوصا فيما يتعلق بصفقات التسليح لتجاه المملكة العربية السعودية أو تجاه الجماهيرية العربية الليبية it's known that Marwan became exceptionally wealthy through his business dealings. In London, he owned a share in Chelsea Football Club and had a business reputation for playing by his own rules. Oh, he upset lots of me. He had dozens of companies all over the place in Liechtenstein and he was under any deal that he could make money from. Now, I've got no direct knowledge of these deals, but I do know of a number of companies that he was involved with. And any one of those could have turned sour. Marwan's career was both long and in many ways distinguished. His marriage to the daughter of the Egyptian president opened many doors for him. Some believed that he owed his reported billionaire status to having amassed a fortune brokering arms deals. During his lifetime, Marwan was described as a diplomat, a businessman, a politician, a government advisor, and a spy. It's likely that at different stages, he performed all of these roles. But the name Ashraf Marwan is best known for espionage. There's no question that he spied for Israel. He may, however, have been a double agent, with his true loyalty being to his native Egypt. Well, as all countries, Israel is in any other country, interested in intelligence. That's the way you know what your enemy and sometimes your friends think. So the best way, having someone 
so close uh, to, to the president, someone that was the son-in-law of Gamal Abdel Nasser and later uh, the president uh, Sadat, was invaluable for accumulating information and close to the, the, the decision-making. As was the case of uh, Eli Cohen, the Israeli spy in Damascus a few years earlier. At first, the suggestion that Ashraf Marwan, a man at the very heart of Egyptian society, had spied for Israel, seems implausible. But what's intriguing about the Marwan case, again, there are many things that we don't know. But what we do know, I think, fairly well documented from the Israeli side, not from the Egyptian side, is that Marwan offered his own services to the Israelis. There are several stories about how Marwan was recruited as an Israeli spy. One comes from Yuri Bar Joseph, an author who's written extensively about Israeli intelligence. In 2016, Bar Joseph published The Angel, the Egyptian spy who saved Israel. This account of Marwan's life says he was codenamed the Angel by Israeli intelligence. The book claims that Marwan phoned the Israeli embassy in London, offering his services. After being initially rebuffed, Marwan and a senior Mossad agent agreed to meet. A series of phone calls and messages followed. The Mossad agents realized quickly that this was a potential source like no other, the son-in-law of the Egyptian president. A message was sent to Marwan to go to a nearby cafe. The Israelis were initially skeptical of the approach, wondering if Marwan's true intention was to become a double agent in order to feed false information back to them. Marwan pushed an envelope across the table. Later, the Jerusalem Post reported the European head of Mossad as saying that material like this, from a source like this, happens once in a thousand years. Well, any case officer who receives potential walk-in or a double agent will always assume the worst. And the best way that a walk-in can establish their credentials is by producing First of all, proof of their own identity. Secondly, uh, proof of their access to the kind of information that would be of interest to the recipient. Uh, and thirdly, best of all, would be to provide a specimen, so examples of really good intelligence, which demonstrates the status of the agent and his or her level of access. As to the contents of the envelope handed over in the London cafe, that remains a mystery. Also unknown and subject to much speculation are Marwan's motives. Yeah, and obviously most of the documents of what he, he provided are still under wraps and take time until all of them would be uh, revealed. But the fact that he, he, got, he became even closer to Sadat that it was to his father-in-law that was more suspicious of him he saw him more as a, as, as, as a young playboy that was more interested in political power than in his own, you know, in, in, in his wife that was Gamal Abdel Nasser, 
daughter. This was a time of profound political change in Egypt. On the 28th of September 1970, Nasser suffered a sudden heart attack and died at the age of 52. He was succeeded by Anwar Sadat. This could have spelled the end of Ashraf Marwan's position at the heart of government and influence in Egypt. But instead, he grew close to Sadat, shielding him from political opponents and earning trust along the way. He represented Egypt in a number of higher-level missions with two Arab neighbors, Saudi Arabia and Libya. Ashraf Marwan was positioned at the center of Egypt's decision-making, while at the same time feeding information to its greatest regional adversary, Israel. Ashraf Marwan fit the bill of someone that Sadat would like closer to him more Western-minded, more uh, economic-minded. And as a result of it, he trusted him, but the more he trusted him, the more Ashraf Marwan became invaluable to the Israelis. Coming up in part two, arms dealing, political maneuvering, and spycraft. The everyday world of Ashraf Marwan. Marwan was a man that um, lived high on promises. He took many, many fees and disappointed a lot of people. And one of his business deals could have gone wrong or he took money off people he should not have done. And there was an aspect of revenge. Ashraf Marwan was an Egyptian billionaire businessman living in an upmarket London apartment. Married to the daughter of former Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser, he appeared to have everything to live for. Marwan was also a man of secrets. It's known that he spied for Israel, but he may also have been a double agent, loyal to Egypt. Such questions came to an abrupt end when on a summer afternoon in June 2007, his body was found in the garden of the building where he lived. Did Marwan fall from his fifth floor balcony? Did he jump? Or was he pushed? book written by a former director of Israeli intelligence at the time of the 1973 Arab-Israeli war refers to a secret agent supplying high-level information to Israel. The claim was that this operative was working deep inside the government of Egypt's president Sadat. It was alleged that this spy fed the Israelis crucial information about Egypt's plans for military engagement with Israel. It's also claimed he leaked sensitive information about Russian arms supply links with Egypt. Many believe that Ashraf Marwan was this agent, perpetuating a mystery that is still unresolved. 
he remains celebrated as a loyal intelligence agent by both Israel and Egypt. أول حاجة علشان تجيب على هذا التساؤل يجب عليك إن أنت تقضي ساعات طويلة من البحث والدراسة والفحص تدرس كل شيء أولا كان في حياة أشرف مروان على مستوى عمله في رئاسة الجمهورية يجب أن تدرس ما هي المعلومات التي سلمها إلى دولة إسرائيل معلومات أشرف مروان عندما تدرسها لن تجد فيها إنها أدت إلى مثلا إبادة كتيبة مصرية لم تؤدي إلى أي شيء استراتيجي على الأرض يؤدي إلى ضرر الدولة المصرية بشكل موجع يؤدي إلى خسائر بشرية أو خسائر في العتاد وفي الأسلحة علشان كده أنا بقول أشرف مروان كان عميل كان عميلا مزدوجا مصريا خالصا بامتياز The most controversial moment of Ashraf Marwan's life as a spy came in October 1973, when it's alleged he tipped off Israel about an imminent attack by Egyptian forces. A series of clandestine meetings and phone calls involving pre-arranged code words warned Israel that the 1973 Arab-Israeli war was just hours away. This coincided with the Jewish Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when much of Israel was closed for the holiday. In Tel Aviv, the government faced a decision. Six months earlier, Marwan had given a similar alert, but the predicted attack did not come. There was also some confusion over the time of the attack, whether it would come by day or night. Either too late to warn them, or not convincing enough to leave Israel, to mobilize its, its reserve forces. Bear in mind, Israel always had the strategy that the conscripts are the ones that need to hold any surprise attack for around 48 to 72 hours. Analysts agree that Marwan did indeed alert the Israelis about the imminent start of the 1973 war. It's also clear that his predicted timing was out by a few hours. Was this simply a mistake or a deliberate tactic to wrong foot the Israeli military? I think this is the very heart of why there's speculation about him being uh, an Egyptian double agent. Because if um, he fed this information and it was wrong, even just marginally wrong, it still gave the Egyptians uh, a huge advantage. You know, they were able to cross the Suez Canal. They were able to regain some part of the Sinai Peninsula. So I think um, it's interesting. It could well have been that he didn't have entirely the right time and it was an innocent mistake and he was just trying to help the Israelis. But I think also it does cast a very interesting light on actually him potentially still being an Egyptian double agent. With both sides claiming Ashraf Marwan as a hero, who would want him dead? It's possible that whichever country he was really betraying may have exacted revenge. Again, there are theories, but little hard evidence. What makes sense doesn't necessarily happen in history. But if this is the case that he was killed by someone, there is more than one candidate to do that, who said it's the Mossad and not, for instance, some of his enemies in, in Egypt. 
So what has Egypt got to say in response to Israeli sources who claim Marwan as one of their agents? Was his death an act of revenge in response to his alleged betrayal of Egypt's national secrets? المخابرات المصرية على حد تقديري ليست طرف عندي معلوماتي وبعدين عاوز اقول لك حاجه انا اشرف مروان يوم ما قتل كان حسن بارك في السلطه ولا يوم كان انت اي جهاز النهارده يبتدي يتصرف مع اشرف مروان لانه كان على علاقه وطيده بعائله مبارك وحسن بارك الرئيس مبارك قبله في سنه 2004 وعقب وفاته أصدر بيانا في 2 يوليو 2007 وألف شين ألف المصرية أصدرت بيان قالت فيه أن أشرف مروان كان عميلا مصريا خالصا لكن لم يحن الوقت بعد لكشف الخدمات اللي قدمها الوطن If Marwan was murdered and that's by no means certain could those responsible have been linked with his business dealings Following the October 1973 war Egyptian President Sadat appointed Ashraf Marwan as a presidential international representative. In March 1974, a decree appointed Marwan to this high-profile role. It placed the newly appointed emissary in the same sphere as leaders of other powerful Arab countries. At this point, it's likely that Marwan entered the lucrative and at times murky world of military weapons procurement. بعد ما ترك السلطة المصرية وذهب إلى لندن بدأ يستغل هذه العلاقات في تكوين ثروة عن طريق يعني أخذ عملات من من جانب الدول الأوروبية التي كان يستخدم منها سلاح إلى الدول العربية التي تربطه علاقات صداقة بزعمائها. In 1981, Marwan left Egypt and started a new life in London. He thrived in London's corporate business scene. Having already forged high-level connections in the Middle East, he made new business relationships with prominent figures, including the late Tiny Roland, a controversial high-profile business figure. Roland was connected with a company called Tradewinds with an international footprint. Marwan also maintained his contacts in the Middle East, including with Ahmed Gaddaf al-Dam, cousin and close confidant of the then Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi. The idea of Tradewinds was a private cargo company which would, with Roland's uh, input, transport throughout the Middle East and Africa goods and services that Marwan could introduce, including weapons. And the Tradewinds company was supposed to be shepherding weapons around Africa for the Libyans and everybody else. وكان بيتعاون مع عدة ملفات شائكة وخطيرة في تصدير بعض النوعيات من الطائرات وبعض الأنواع من المركبات وبعض الأنواع من الأسلحة. Could it be that Marwan's death was connected to his dealings in the international arms trade? شوف موضوع أن تدخل في مافيا السلاح فلا بد أن تعلم تماماً أنك تمشي نهايتك في النهاية يوم ما تبتدي 
ما تبتديش توفي توفي التزاماتك في هذه التجاره ما قدامك فاصل غير القتل ما فيش فاصل اخر ما فيش طرف ثاني يا اما تشتغل صح يا اما تموت من كان يريد اغتيال اشرف مروان اذا كانوا من هؤلاء الاسياد كان المفروض يختلوه على ارض تكون نتائج العمليه فيها ستكون اقل ضررا فكان ممكن اغتياله على ارض افريقيه من الدول العالم الثالث وكان الموضوع هيبدو ابسط كثيرا مما كان يبدو لو الاغتيال تم في عاصمه كبرى من العواصم العالميه الرئيسيه مثل لندن Marwan's business dealings in London were complex. He bought and sold commercial property and invested in several high-profile British companies across a wide range of sectors. He also had a stake in a leading London football club. I met Ashraf Marwan probably seven or eight times. Um, most of those times were in the late 80s um late 1980s i'd been introduced to him by tiny roland and the point about marwan for me the interest for me at that time was that he had been buying um share stakes in a lot of british companies um he'd suddenly appeared from nowhere and he was buying strategic stakes 15% here 30% there and nobody knew who he was well throughout the 1980s and 1990s and from then on um marwan was very active as a businessman in london he um had a huge number of properties and investments he was um, a major investor in chelsea football club and was involved in many de- deals with um, handling companies um in the uk In the early 1980s, Marwan was on the fringes of a high-profile feud between his friend Tiny Roland and the Egyptian businessman Mohammed Al-Fayed. The two were battling for control of House of Fraser, the company that then owned the luxury London department store, Harrods. Fayed feared Marwan because of Marwan's connection with the government in Egypt and Fayed was an Egyptian and his connections throughout the Middle East and the propensity for Marwan to do great harm in the opinion of Fayed and others should he wish to do so Mohammed Al Fayed had private detectives following Ashraf Marwan and Tiny Roland all the time they were like Marwan and Roland were like a partnership and they were following Marwan and Roland meanwhile Roland and Marwan had their own team of private detectives following Alfayed and so the, everywhere they went in London around the world there were teams of private detectives following each other in the end the feud between the two tycoons reached its own natural conclusion i think their feud the the tiny Roland feud ended with Tiny Roland's death. Tiny Roland died quite a while ago of natural causes. Um he had cancer I think uh, and he died and I saw a lot of fire around the time of Diana's death and Dodi's death. I never heard fire talk about Marwan. 
I think Marwan had become a, a rather forgotten figure, a rather lonely figure. Um, he didn't have the same power he had before. In his later years, friends recalled a tall man, nearly two metres, immaculately dressed, with a mysterious air. Journalists spoke of his charm, but added that he gave little away. William Marwan was a man that um, lived high on promises. He took many, many fees and disappointed a lot of people. And one of his business deals could have gone wrong, or he took money off people he should not have done, and there was an aspect of revenge. Returning to Ashraf Marwan's final hours, they were spent in his luxury apartment in central London. Marwan lived in a very expensive and luxurious uh, apartments building uh, on Carlton Terrace. Carlton House Terrace is the London home for the British Foreign Secretary. And at the bottom of that is the Admiralty Arch, which is an enormous flat which is held by people in high position in government or deputy prime ministers. Given his background, those who followed the case closely are convinced that he was being monitored by British intelligence. Marwan was very well known to the intelligence services because they had a very good reason to keep an eye on him because he was interfering in the body politic in the whole of the Middle East while he was domiciled in London. And why wouldn't they keep an eye on him? Because it was in their interest to do so. Carlton House Terrace has a magnet that can be found in it, can be recorded by cameras, الطرقات مراقبة، الأسانسرات كلها مراقبة، المدخل مراقب، كل أنواع المراقبة في هذا اليوم تم تعطيلها في تلك اللحظة. The fact that the CCTV cameras were not working that day certainly hampered any search for truth or closure. The issue of the CCTV has also been a subject of debate. In the UK, we have a huge number of CC, a very, very high number of CCTV coverage. Most people assume that every CCTV camera is on 24-7. So if you take this into, into context with the other issues, the fact that we are told that the CCTV was not recording, I would say raises questions. Another question which may give clues as to what happened on that June afternoon is about Marwan's physical and mental health. Dr. Ashraf Marwan, in the last time I saw him in Icebridge, I didn't know him. He was not Dr. Ashraf Marwan in his health condition, which he was trying to do. He was very weak. ماشي بعصاية البدلة وسع عليه فكانت صحته تدهورت في الأيام الأخيرة. If he was indeed in such poor health, would he have been physically capable of throwing himself from a balcony? In the context of this matter, it's very odd because you have a man who, a 63-year-old man, who apparently has a neuropathy of his feet. And cannot and go into a bathroom unassisted. If you take that in conjunction with a high balcony, for a 63-year-old male with pain in his feet, how did he access the high balcony, and how did he come to go over that balcony? 
زائد ان الجو في اليوم دون كان جو وحش جدا هوا وزعبيب كبيره جدا عشان حد يخرج بلكونه دي يعني شبه مستحيله يعني There's another question one which some sources dispute It's been claimed that Ashraf Marwan was writing a tell-all book a memoir that his adversaries may have preferred not to see published On the topic of missing evidence there is also of course a lot of questions about um, uh, Dr Marwan having started writing his memoirs and audio tapes accompanying those memoirs This would have been the full story of his life and who he'd worked for perhaps and um it was a three volume work um with uh, 300 pages or something like that apparently so a substantial uh, piece of writing that he'd been doing as well as some tapes in which he'd uh, dictated what he'd written now nobody actually saw these memoirs nobody heard the tapes but um apparently uh, they existed they were on the shelf in his apartment and uh, when the police arrived to um, cordon off the scene and went through his belongings uh, they were missing so the question arises were they removed uh, did the police miss them or did the police lose them The matter of the alleged missing memoirs is a question that Al Jazeera wanted to put to London's Metropolitan Police who investigated the case. However, they declined the request to appear in this program. In those days, um, the London Police were a branch of the Conservative Party. And it's not the same now, but um when you have a high-profile death that impinged on the government, then the uh, the metropolitan police would do their best to cover things up and manipulate it's not the same now there were witnesses to marwan's fall from the fifth floor balcony four men were meeting at an adjacent building by coincidence they worked for one of the victims companies and were expecting to meet their boss later in the day one witness joseph rapasi says he saw dr marwan fall Later he claimed to have seen two men of Middle Eastern appearance looking from a balcony but could not confirm if this balcony was at Marwan's address. Al Jazeera wrote to Mr. Rapasi and to another witness, Esam Shauki. However, neither man replied. So what is known of the two men said to be of Middle Eastern appearance? Apparently that has been what's been reported um in the second uh, wave of investigation it was reported that yes they did know who they were but their um their names have been kept as a secret. So you know there seems to be very much a British intelligence establishment cover up around this case which is suspicious in itself. However, any criticism of the police investigation must be seen in the context of the outcome of the coroner's inquest. It declared what's called an open verdict, the legal term for a death that is suspicious but unexplained. If they knew, for instance, who may have had a reason to kill Marwan and it did not suit the body politic to explore it much further, then they would cover it up. and they were covered up for two reasons in my opinion firstly it would have done the british government no good 
a man like Marwan who was uh, no longer around, well that could be thought to be advantageous. He's gone, he's of no use to us, he's of no harm to us anymore. Let's not rock the boat. The second thing is the turbulence in the Middle East, which is bad enough anyway. You don't want to uh, start an investigation then to find perhaps that one of your allies may have had a hand in the, uh, in the murder of a protagonist. You know, bad investigation, yeah, but good politics. The life and death of Ashraf Marwan has all the plot twists of a gripping spy story. One reason why he's been the subject of several books, TV documentaries and dramas. The truth of his life is in every sense stranger than fiction. His marriage to the teenage daughter of the Egyptian president Gamal Abdel Nasser. His later relationship with Nasser's successor Anwar Sadat. His move to London and the phone call to the Israeli embassy offering his services as a spy. His role in the 1973 Arab-Israeli war. Did he tip off Israel to give them a military advantage or deliberately pass on flawed information to help Egypt? Spy, arms trader, international wheeler dealer in London, accumulating vast wealth. And in June 2007, his unexplained death. As with all spy stories, the lines between truth, lies, fact and fiction are never quite what they seem. <laughs>